Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. In many ways, it's a great moment to be a professional woman. America's just inaugurated its first female vice president in Kamala Harris. Wall Street's glass ceiling has cracked at last. On March the 1st, Jane Fraser took over Citigroup, becoming the first woman to head a big US bank. But despite these individual triumphs, there's a long way to go. The Economist's glass ceiling index finds that American women earn almost a fifth less than men, slightly worse than two years ago. And the pandemic has also pushed women out of work at a disproportionate rate, as Vice President Harris has highlighted. Women leaving the workforce in these numbers, it's a national emergency and it demands a national solution. According to a study by Lean In and the McKinsey Consultancy, one in four women are now thinking of downshifting careers or leaving the workforce entirely. So this week we're asking, how can women move further and faster through the glass ceiling? My guests today are two such ceiling-destroying women, Joanna Coles and Melora Hardin. Coles is CEO of the investment company Northern Star and a board member of Snap, which owns Snapchat. Born in Britain, she conquered America as editor-in-chief, first of Marie Claire, then Cosmopolitan, rising to manage Hearst's 300 magazine titles all around the world. It's earned her multiple awards, including one from Buckingham Palace, and the accolade of being immortalised on screen as Jacqueline in The Bold Type, which follows young women trying to make it in love, lipstick and leader pictures at a glossy New York magazine. Melora Hardin plays Jacqueline, a stilettoed, hyper-competent and compassionate editor-in-chief. Melora's own career spans stage and screen, from Roxy in Chicago and Fantine in Les Miserables to an Emmy-nominated turn in the TV drama Transparent. But you might know her as a rather different sort of boss as Ferocious Jan in the American version of The Office. Melora Hardin, Joanna Coles, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hi, so nice to meet you and see you. Hello, I'm thrilled to be here. Joanna, we're going to start with you and the bowl type. It is currently preparing for a fifth and final riotous season. What do you think marks it out from all those other TV tales we've been consuming on, on the sofa this last year of young women, often writers, looking for love, looking for success in New York City, Sex and the City, Lena Dunham's Girls? What makes it different? I think what makes the bold type different is that it has a group of working women, but it's multi-generational working women who don't all hate each other and try and bring each other down. And the conflict is actually in the outside world and the women themselves are actually supportive of each other. And this was always my experience in the workplace. I spent some time in Fleet Street. I moved to America. I didn't very often have female bosses or senior female colleagues. But when I did, I found that they were incredibly helpful. And I tried to do that with younger women too. And yet I never saw that represented on screen. And I still think it's a really unusual thing to see on television. Melora, TV, film history, 
both littered with monstrous female bosses, often rather entertaining ones, it must be said. The underlings kind of get on mainly despite them. If we think about Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada, even Jan in The Office is hard-edged, a bit emotionally unstable, and, and Jacqueline is a far cry from those. It made me wonder why also someone who's acted a lot of different power roles. What makes you think that we do enjoy these portrayals of the evil woman boss? We, we all are raised to believe that women are clawing at each other's backs. And I think also just the fact that women have not been equal, they've not been in equal status, that women have to fight harder for their jobs, that has fed into pop culture representation of women trying to get their place. And, and then there also is some truth in it, obviously, right? That women have had to work harder and do have fewer slots to, to fit into. So I think that's why we enjoy watching it. That is the main reason that I chose to do The Bold Type. I had just finished doing Transparent. And one of the things about Transparent was that it just did such good things in the world for the trans community, but also for people that were cisgender, being able to have more compassion, more understanding, more empathy for that way of life. And I and I felt like the next thing I did, I wanted to do something that was gonna do something good in the world. And that's what I love about the bold type. I think it is representing women in a way that is far more real and realistic. I was very struck when I read Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, which is an extraordinary collection of research about women in leadership roles that successful women were disliked. They were disliked by men and they were disliked by women. And I think that's partly because of the way they are portrayed in films and on television whenever they have power, from Cruella Deville to Miranda Priestley. And it was really important to me to try and shift that perception. Women can be powerful and they cannot be crazy. Witness all the revisionism about Margaret Thatcher and the Iron Lady and the Crown. They can also be competent and humane. And Jacqueline, the character that you play, sort of struck me thinking that we've come up, you know, we will both then say where we came up the hard way and where we perhaps feel we had it easier. And Melora will, will chime in than, than young women now. But she's only monstrous, your character or loosely based character for about five minutes. Then she's accessible. She's caring to her most junior staff. And I have to admit, John, I did watch it thinking, can a woman boss really measure up to this? If she was that nice all the time, would she ever really get to the top? I think that you wouldn't ask that question of a man. And I think there are many roles of men bosses on television that you just accept that the guy is a good dude. And we can't do it about women, and it's really tragic. And it's something fundamental at the heart of our culture, which makes me really despair. I mean, I might or might not have asked it of a man. That's a fair point. But I suppose there's also, I could be saying, if she was like that, would she have been allowed to become the woman boss in the first place? Well, why wouldn't you be allowed to be a woman boss because you're pleasant? Because there is that sense of the woman having to exude a kind of toughness. I look at very specific women who only encouraged me, which didn't mean that they weren't sometimes quite harsh in their critique of what I was doing, but it was always coming from a place of, you can be better, here is how to get better, just keep moving. Jacqueline Carlyle is a character loosely inspired by me. She's much more glamorous, she's much nicer than I could ever hope to be. But I think we show her toughness and her resolve in the conflict that she has with some of the senior men at the company. So we're not showing that she's a pushover, 
but we're also not showing her groping her underlings or sexually harassing people, as unfortunately we're learning was happening with a lot of male bosses. Talking from a publication, The Economist has a female editor-in-chief and it has a female CEO. So certainly a lot has changed. And I just wonder, Joanna, if you look back, how much do you think has changed over the last, say, 25 30 years since we started out in journalism. In some ways, I think that we had a lot more security, but at the same time, the technological challenges were vast. I think women have made enormous strides. It's incredibly unusual now to go into a room, I would say in almost everything except finance. I've recently pivoted into finance and I'm really shocked by the dearth of women there, especially women writing big checks. But it's very unusual now to go into a room where there is only one woman. Whereas I think when I was embarking on my career, it was very common to go into a room and you would be the only woman. And what about in acting, Melora? What's the comparison there for your route to screen and and stage in terms of how much has changed. I think you've been acting for a very long time and you got, got going in there. I did. I started when I was six years old. Yeah, I mean, I think it's completely different <laughs> now than when, it, when I was a child. And I've seen so many things change. I remember the first time I was directed by a woman. That was when I was in my late teens. And I remember how sexualized she was by the crew, looking back on it now, which is really interesting. Although I think she somewhat played that up and was using that to her advantage. She was wonderful. I, I, I really loved her. But yeah, she was definitely looking back on it now. I definitely see what part of what she was doing. Well, that's it's interesting that it took that long before you encountered just a woman who was sort of holding the power there in terms of shaping what was going to come out. And then, of course, I have a very, a very sad story about women. When I was 18, I was hired to play McFly's girlfriend in Back to the Future. And Eric Stoltz was actually playing McFly at first, and then he was let go. And when he was let go, they came and they told me that they were going to have to let me go because they hired Michael J. Fox and they said... I was too tall to play his girlfriend. And now remember at that time, I was 18 years old. I remember just being in floods of tears about it. I just found out last year by the guy who's writing the book about Back to the Future. He called me and we had a whole interview and he said, Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale were fine with you being taller than Michael J. Fox. It was female executives that felt that it disempowered their hero to have a girlfriend that was taller than him. And I was shocked to hear this. But if you think about that, that that was like, what, 1985 or something? I thought, wow, we have come a long way. I would be shocked if that happened today. You're now directing as well. So I'm interested in how you channel what you've experienced yourself, what you think has changed. How do we create an environment that moves faster on equal opportunities? You know, what's more effective? Is it quotas? Is it pay? Transparency? I mean, I think it's I think it's a combination of those things. And I think that I don't think you can get anywhere playing the victim. I think you have to just be stepping into your own skill sets where you are strongest. You know, I've done my 10,000 hours in, in both of the, the, the directing and the acting, of course. Keep working towards what you see and how you see it and face injustice with honesty and with truth and with push, but but not coming from a place of being victimized. I think that's one of the worst things women can do for their evolution. All those things I think have to be addressed from a place of your own personal power 
around your own personal strengths, the things that you have built. So it was a really interesting quote I read from you, Melora, which says Hollywood is like high school with money. It's not ageist, it's not sexist, it just doesn't tolerate victims. And I think that's kind of true. I mean, I suppose some people would say, you know, one person's view of what it is to be a victim is another person's view, and we might come on to the Meghan Markle case in just a moment, is, you know, that's very contested, isn't it? What, what it is to be either playing the victim or just saying, well, actually, I was a victim. Do you not think there's a, a case for sometimes saying I was a victim? I think there absolutely is. There's no doubt that there is a time when you are honestly a victim. There's no doubt about that. And I think that when you are, you need to do whatever you can, you know, with the law and with advocates to correct that or make that right. And I absolutely believe her fighting for that, for sure. I'm making a documentary right now about that. But that's an internal thing in, in my documentary. It's about transforming that for oneself. And I also think it's hard to talk and generalize about these kinds of things because every circumstance is unique. But I would say as a general motto for me anyway, is to go forward with as much integrity as you can around your own strengths. Jana, what did you make of the very different response to the Meghan Markle Prince Harry interview on either side of the Atlantic. Clearly, there are people on sympathetic and detractors wherever you go. But I would say there was perhaps more automatic sympathy with Meghan Markle as a victim of the royal family of this allegedly callous firm of House of Windsor than there was here. What do you make of that? Well, I thought the winner was Oprah. Astounding interview, incredibly well done. And again, the simplicity of the situation reminds us that good television is about conversations with real people. I felt and I always feel for people who've ended up splitting off from their family in major ways, that it's very difficult to do this in public. When Prince Harry said that Prince Charles stopped returning his calls. I felt terrible that the only way they felt they could resolve this was with a two-hour conversation on global television. And I'm sorry she had such a miserable experience at the palace. I think she would have been a wonderful modernising force for the royal family. I also understand that... There are, I think, forces within the royal family that probably don't want to change it. Disruption is coming. It's come to the music business. It's come to the media business. It's come to the financial industry. It's coming for the royal family and it's partly digitally driven. I felt terrible that the situation had come to this, that Oprah became their therapist in front of a global audience of a billion people. I never think that's the way to solve your issues. And I hope they all get through it together. Riveting as it was to be watching. And it does bring us to the costs of success, perhaps not quite as strife-ridden as uh, the, the royal family and, and Meghan Markle. But as I was watching the, the build type, and I'm really, I was starting way back, you know, but it's series one here in the UK, you know, we're getting, getting there. And I thought, well, they're going to have this interesting road ahead and some of them will become parents as it happens. You're both mothers. This idea that could you have it all? Can you balance it? Well, can you? Can you have it all at the same time? And how does it work for you, Melora? I certainly balance many balls in the air all the time. And Joanna does that. We actually do have children that are roughly the same age. I have two girls. She has two boys. I never liked this idea of can you have it all? I, I've never liked that because what is all? You know, all is whatever you want. I mean, if you want to have 
a relationship, you have to work for that. If you want a career, you have to work for that. If you want children, that's going to be the hardest and best job you'll ever do. If you want, you know, whatever you want. But I think if you want it enough, all you have to do is look around. People are doing that. If you do have advice that you can pass on from doing a career such a sustained high level, what is it? I mean, I think we're often a bit shy to do like parenting advice probably because we're so aware of our weaknesses. And, uh, but uh, yeah, what have you learned from it? I've learned that we don't talk about parenting in positive enough ways in our culture, that whenever we talk about parenting, we present to women the idea that they're going to have to juggle, that it's going to be unbelievably complicated and difficult, that it's going to cost a fortune, that they should wait until they're ready, until there's a perfect time, all of which is nonsense. It's a fantastic thing to have children if you want them. I wish that I had started earlier in my life, but I believe that I had to get a certain amount of career experience behind me because I thought it was going to be this very deleterious thing on my career. That turned out not to be true because it changed my headspace. And I hate the way we talk about juggling. I don't think of balance at all. I don't think there is any balance and I'm not sure it's what we should be striving for. I always think about it in much more practical terms, which is how do we get from today to tomorrow and stay relatively intact in what we all want to do? And once you have kids, they have their own personalities and they create all sorts of whirlpools around them that that you deal with. Am I right to say, I don't want to put your words in your mouth because you take them straight out again and throw them back at me. Are you saying you don't believe in the work-life balance? I don't think there is any work-life balance for most people. I think you're often caught up in the moment. If your child is sick, there's no work-life balance. If you're on a deadline and you have to meet it and you're pulling all-nighters, there's no balance. And I think by pretending that balance is the perfect state and we should all be moving towards that, you disempower people and you don't allow them to enjoy the intensity of a fantastic work moment when it's going really well and everybody's all in. And you don't allow them to the, enjoy the moments of just sheer bliss when your child is running across a soccer field and just, you know, smiling and laughing and playing with his friends. I think we've created this sort of nightmare scenario where we're all supposed to be in a state of near nirvana. And we know that's not true. But I think it's a whole mess. I think every day changes and you have to embrace the chaos and do the best you can. Embrace the chaos, indeed. That's actually, I'm going to get that stuck as a motto. I was going to say above my office door, which right now would mean above every door in the house. Well, if I could embroider it on a cushion, I would. Assuming you're into embroidery, which I don't know, maybe you are. I'm definitely not into embroidery. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to imagine that for a minute with a sort of power heels and, but, you know, you can do it. It can be done. I've given up my power heels. Now I'm in Birkenstock, so much more comfortable. Well, funnily enough, we had kept the shoe question to the end, but it, it does come up, isn't it? Are we still running in heels? Joanna goes, no, you're in Birkenstocks. What about you, Melora? You present yourself in a very pulled together way in, in the bold type. Do you have to kind of still practice with the shoes? I don't have to practice with the shoes and I take them off as soon as I possibly can. So they're they're on for whenever we're doing a wide shot, they're off when we're doing close-ups. I can tell you that. Small shoe aside there. <laughs> now, gentlemen, please rejoin the conversation. Um, you've said of Jan from the office that she'd become more hard, even more masculine by climbing the ranks in a man's world, almost putting aside her femininity. Do you think that there is still that expectation that women will have to retain a certain... We're talking about shoes and maybe that is the the link point, you know, that there's a look that is powerful, but it's also feminine and that maybe there's less understanding if you don't go that way and just want to be fairly forceful, but don't want to sort of make 
overt femininity a part of your, your mix? I think we're getting to where everything flies. I mean, I was just at the sort of fanciest store that here in here in Montreal, and I was just browsing and wonderfully happy to see that every single designer has a beautiful tennis shoe, a beautiful sneaker right now. I was really like, that's really good. Like, that's a mm. nice, to me, that's a nice reflection of where we're going. I think fashion is a wonderful reflection of what's going on in pop culture. And I don't think that anyone would look down their nose at you if you showed up at a red carpet event in some beautiful pair of tennis shoes. I think you can do it. The sort of more serious sort of side of that, Joanna, is this view that forceful women can still be thought of as rude or overbearing. Have you ever felt that there was a premium on female niceness and that you were held to a different standard? Well, I think the word ambition is much more loaded for women than it is for men. If you're an ambitious man, that's a good thing. If you're an ambitious woman, it suggests you're somehow scheming and that you don't deserve to dream bigger. So I think we have to shift that. And again, we talk about ambition quite a lot in the show and how much the women can especially the younger women, can own up to it and admit it and pursue their ambition. That's not a discussion that men need to have or need to worry about because it's good for men and it's loaded for women. What do we do when things don't work out? I think we often talk, particularly in slightly motivational way, about young women coming on in our various businesses or just getting ahead in the world. We sometimes, I think, maybe shy away from what happens when it doesn't work out, when there are more bruising moments. So, Melora, I mean, actors who audition have to be kind of inured to failure. It's it's baked into what it is to, to be in the profession at a, a high level. And I'm also thinking back, actually, to your corporate battle axe, Jan, getting fired and having to create a new life as a candle maker. Uh, how do we cope with disasters as well as, as triumphs and how should we think about them? Well, I think I'm very lucky because I was raised by two actors and I was taught very young that like being a person who's independently employed, which is really what it is to be an actor, you have to have other things that you're passionate about, that you're fully invested in, that bring you joy and give you outlets because it can't be all about rejection and acceptance of you as an as an actor because we are our tool, we are our brand. So it's like, it can feel very personal when you get rejected for something. So I would say that you need to have something else. I've always been a very passionate dancer. I, I was very serious ballerina for years and I still dance, you know, twice a week, whenever I can. That is just a great place for me. And also I make art and I, and I feel like you just have to have those other things that bring you joy. Joanna, how have you, when you've pivoted, and as we know, as you get more towards the top of the pyramid in any business. Changes when they come often come quite fast. They're very commented upon. They're very public. You once told me, you said, oh, I've never cried over a job or not getting a role or being moved aside from a role or whatever. Is that advice or is that just the way you are? I think that's just the way I am, actually. And to try and see it in the bigger scheme of things, I think it's a great question. How do you deal with things that don't work out in the way that you expected them to work out, which isn't necessarily failure. You can control what you can control, which is how you show up. You can't control the bigger scheme of things, and especially in the time of great disruption, which we're all living through at the moment, there are often bigger macro things at work that you have no control over. So being realistic about that, and I think pertaining specifically to the workplace, 
to Melora's point, you need to have more than one iron in the fire and you need to be really practical about your own skills. What are you good at? What are you not good at? And where do you show up where you can be really focused on the things that you are good at, that you enjoy doing and that you may do better than other people? There's a very clear example, actually, in you, Joanna, moving into two new fields right now and, and you've been working on it for a while that are both thought to be quite male-dominated, venture-style investing, tech startups, a, a series of SPACs, which those of you who've listened to our Money Talk show will know are special purpose acquisition companies. We've got a, a great uh, item about those and how they work and what's at stake there. And they're a kind of alternative to the traditional IPO for taking a, a company public. I mean, why did you decide that this, of all the things that you were already doing as next steps, was the place you wanted to go? Well, during COVID, I was really curious about the growth of SPACs. I met a very successful man called John Ledecky, who'd done several SPACs, who was looking for people to partner with in areas that I had more expertise. And so I was very keen to learn more about SPACs. We formed a franchise, it's turned out, to be called Northern Star. We did our first merger with a company called Bark, which produces the Bark Box. It's a subscription business. And I think under COVID, you saw a lot of trends really accelerate, one of them being people buying things on subscription. And I was very excited to use the skills that I have to talk to investors and to think more about businesses. I'd been through an IPO, a traditional IPO process as a board member, and it was incredibly long. And what I remembered was how distracting it was for management. And what a SPAC allows you to do is to take a company public in a much cheaper, much more efficient way for the management of the company. And it's much more transparent process in terms of them having real insight into how much money you're going to raise for them, which allows them much more control about their future roadmap, at least for the next two to three years ahead of them. SPACs are the new black, I think, as you, you put it in brilliant headline. Sounds like we need to check back in with you in a couple of years on, on where that's landed. And Melora, I must ask you also, what's next for you? You're going to step off that treadmill desk of Jacqueline from the bold type soon. What's next for you? Well, I've been working on a documentary for four years that's called Thunder Hunter and Me that I both directed and I'm in right now trying to find its home. So hopefully people will be able to see that streaming somewhere. It's a four part documentary series. And that's very exciting as far as what's coming next acting wise. I, I, I'm not sure. I directed an episode of The Bold Type last season and found that very exciting. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about TV directing because it's very different than what I had done in the past, which was all independent and live theater. So I'd like to definitely do more television directing. So who knows? I don't know. Something good, something wonderful, I'm sure, is right around the corner. Can't let you both go without, I think I'm going to let you choose. I've got an option here for you guys. One piece of advice you wish you'd been given, or what's the worst piece of advice you've been given? Well, Laura, let's stick with you. You go first. One time someone told me, you shouldn't be a jack of all trades and a master of none, right? And, and that they, because I was a dancer and a singer and an actor and, you know, a director, I think that's one of the pieces of worst advice I was ever given. I think everyone should try to go for everything that they want and go for it 100%. Probably one of the best pieces of advice I've had along the way from lots of people is always make the call and always take the call. 
which really means always make the extra call that no one else would make and always take the call. It's about a job or a date or whatever. Don't close the door to opportunities that you don't understand. I like that you went with that because that wasn't one of our two options, Joanna. So you yeah, made such a good point. Thank you, Melora. Um, but I could come up with many pieces of advice that were great pieces of advice that I'd love to share. Maybe the most important one was something that my father put over our door. He framed it and put it over our back door. It is the motto of McDonald's, who started McDonald's. Nothing in the world can take place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent, and let's say women. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. That's a very long quote to have above a door, but I like it. <laughs> I like also, I think I aspire to be an educated derelict. That's it after, after listening to that. But I remember, I think the worst bit of advice I was given was someone saying to me as a young journalist, you're very good, you know, so-and-so thinks you'll be great. You can go on to the but oh, you know, you're a little bit pushy. Like, and I look back and think, and I was actually you know, at the time rather sort of taken aback by that, probably a bit not by that. No, I just think, like, just ignore that kind of advice. I mean, that seems to be the wrong advice. But I feel that that circles back to how we started the conversation, which is that here was someone telling you, you were young, you were successful. And what he was actually saying was, we don't like it. We don't like you. We think you're pushy. And it goes back to, I think, what happens to women all the time, that they don't like it when you're successful. Listen, thank you both very much indeed for, for sharing your thoughts, your journey so candidly with us today. Thanks to Joanna Coles. Uh, enormous fun. Thank you for having us. And to Melora Hardin. Thanks thank so much. Thank you so much, Anne. And we'd love to know what you think. What can successful women do to help successes through that glass ceiling? Can any woman boss really measure up to Jacqueline? And has the pandemic slain the stiletto? I write from a cupboard that is full of them while I sit here in my sneakers. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And if you want to find out more about the booming world of SPACs and whether it might come crashing down, well, do listen to our recent episode of our Money Talks podcast, SPAC to the Future. And while you're with us, please do take a moment to leave us a rating, or better still, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Of course, the star rating is up to you. Thanks for listening to The Economist Asks. My producers today were Amika Shotino-Nolan and Steve Hankey. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. The Economist. 